two humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Today's guest is the incredible, honestly, Bracken Darrell, who is the president and the CEO of Logitech. So a little bit about Bracken. He accepted the role back in 2013 when Logitech wasn't doing so great. Since Bracken took the helm, Logitech's revenue has more than doubled to five and a quarter billion dollars. Not bad going. So you're probably now imagining what this big shot CEO will be like. I'm sure you're imagining the stereotype, you know, command and control and cutthroat, my way or the highway. Think again. I absolutely love talking to Bracken. He's, he's authentic and he's empathetic and he's collaborative. He's creative. He's inspiring. He is 100% imaginal leader. He loves people and he's proved beyond reasonable doubt that the create way of leadership is the smartest way to success. But don't take my word for it any minute now. I'm going to introduce you to Bracken and you can make up your own mind. I genuinely can't wait to hear his stories. But before I introduce you to the amazing Bracken, I just want to say again, a massive, massive thank you to all of you that have sent feedback and suggestions for improvement, what you'd like to see more of. Your feedback is super important to me. It energizes me. It helps me make sure that the series keeps getting better because everything can be better always. It's one of my strap lines. So please head over to catskeely.com and sign up to the Humans Leading Humans newsletter and obviously connect to our social channels and go to www.wearebeep.com to find out more about our Inspiral Imaginal Leadership programs. They really are quite something and are helping leaders in all sorts of global companies be more imaginal. And I love, we love delivering them, but enough of that. Dear listeners, I am so excited to introduce you to Bracken Darrell. Bracken Darrell. I am so delighted to introduce you as one of my guests for the Human Leading Humans podcast. In time-honoured ritual, I'm going to explain to the listeners how we met each other, because the listeners are becoming kind of interested by the network of how people connect with each other. So, dear listeners, Vint Cerf who I had the phenomenal interview with some weeks ago. If you haven't listened to his story, you absolutely should. Introduced me to an incredible woman called Monique Morrow, who's been an incredible advisor to me. I was talking to her about Beep. She said, oh my God, you need to meet Bracken Darrell. If anyone is going to get the Beep way of doing things, Bracken Darrell is that person. So that's why I've invited Bracken to be a guest on Humans Meeting Human. So... The format of this thing, Bracken, is could you explain to the audience how you got to being the CEO of Logitech? 
Sure. You know, I grew up in a small town in Kentucky in the U.S., and then I, I sort of fell in love with leadership as a potential way to have a big impact in the future, you know? And so I went to a small college that most people on this podcast will never have heard of, but it was great, Hendricks College. And then when I got out, I went into accounting, uh, even though I majored in English. Only the accounting firms came to interview really on campus, and, uh, and we had a great accounting program. But I never thought I'd stay being an accountant for long, and I wasn't very good at it, so it's a good thing I didn't. And then I, I went back to school, and I went through a series of big companies. The first one was Procter & Gamble, and then uh, GE, and then Gillette, and then back to Procter & Gamble, and then to Whirlpool. And then finally, I landed here, and the reason I came to Logitech was because I was really excited about the idea of reinventing a company with design. And I had fallen in love with design back when I'd run Braun globally. For Gillette and PG. And that's how I got here. And it's been an amazing experience. Thank you, Brecken. And I'm so, so honored to have you as a guest. Um, so, without further ado, what is your story number one? So, I gave you the Create framework and asked you to tell three stories the three stories that bubble up that were stimulated by the Create framework. So, what is your story number one? I guess my, my first story actually starts right before I got to Logitech. And I've always been a little bit unclear on what a mentor is and isn't. You know, I, it's, I think it's more like a friend, you know, because the mentorship happens in both directions. And if you've got anybody out there listening has a great mentor or a great mentee, you know what I'm saying. Well, I have a guy in my life, and I have several great people in my life doing this for me, but who really is a great friend who have a lot of similar interests. And I think he's almost 80 now. And he and I had a discussion right before I came here. I'd, I'd actually already accepted the job, but I, he, he lives in, in another place. And I went to see him. His name's Sammy Seagal. And we had lunch together. And, and so he gave me advice. He said, you know, I'm not sure I'd take that job, by the way, because this company seems like they're in trouble and looks pretty tough to turn around. And so we had a discussion around the job. I'd already taken the job, so I was going to take it. And at the end of it, I got up and I started to walk away from the table. And he said, uh, oh, and one more thing. Remember, he's an entrepreneur who's been very successful. He said, you clean the windows and wash the floor. Or you wash the windows and clean the floors. I said, okay, thanks, Sammy. And I turned around. I thought, I kind of thought, okay, it seems obvious what he meant. And then it's not obvious what he meant. Guys, I kept walking down the stairs out of the restaurant. I started to think, what did he mean? And then I finally decided what I thought he meant was it's about ownership, top to bottom, you know, feeling like an owner and not a renter, not, not feeling like a manager who's been hired, but really feeling like the owner, not taking other people's jobs, literally, but really, literally feeling like you own every bit of it. And I had grown up in these big companies, you know, and I probably had never fully felt that. And I wanted to feel that. And so that's exactly from day one, I would literally like pick stuff up off the floor and I still do. And I would, you know, I don't think I ever really washed a window, but I would, because I think this concept of really feeling ownership and responsibility and accountability for what you do, whether you're a CEO or no matter what job you're in, is so critical. I completely con concur. So there's two questions I want to ask you about that. The first question is, I too have had mentors throughout my career. Without them, I don't know how I would survive because sometimes things get tough. How yeah. do you choose your mentors? You know, I've never really chosen a mentor. I, I have people who have chosen me as a mentor. In fact, just this weekend, uh, 
a woman reached out to me from Nigeria, a 19 year old girl, you know, and said, I really want you to be my mentor. And I said, okay. I said the same thing to her that I would say to, said to you a minute ago, I'm not really sure what a mentor is, except that, you know, if I can help you, I feel like kind of, I'm, you know, we're all here on this earth to make life better for, for each other, you know? And, and so if I can help you in any way, I will. So I don't know if I ever chose one. I've bumped into people the way you described that we met, you know, in the beginning of this podcast. And sometimes you bump into someone and there's either an affinity or you just like each other or you admire them. And then you come back and say, I got something I really, really like some advice on. And then the relationship develops. And I prefer not to call it mentorship. I prefer just to call it friendship, you know, because friendships go both ways. Mentorship sounds like I, you know, I either impart wisdom on you or you impart wisdom on me. And I'm either the receiver or the giver, rarely both. But I don't think a good relationship is like that. And I think, you know, I 100% agree with what you say. And it, sometimes you feel the chemistry with somebody. There's yeah. al- almost like a ready-made relationship where you feel that you can be 100% honest with them and transparent with them. And Absolutely. that's the only way you can really get good advice and have a really good... Because sometimes they don't need to say anything, yeah. do they? You well, can just I, talk, I, and as you're talking, you think, I know what the answer is <laughs> now. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just need to talk yourself, you know, and and, I, and you need a friend to talk it out with, you know, you're, you know, kind of put it out there. But often you need more than that. And usually you need more than that. And, you know, I think the deceiving thing is that you think you need somebody who's been there to get you the advice, you know. And I think I've learned as much from people who had absolutely nothing to do with my profession or my career or may have been, you know, 20 years or 40 years younger or 20 years older as I have from people who really lived exactly what I did. I've gotten a lot from both. I mean, I have, you know, friends of all kinds, but you know, it's amazing what you can learn from somebody who today, who's, for example, if you're, I'm 58, from somebody who's 17, you realize what you've forgotten about being a newcomer and the advantage of innocence and, and uh, a little bit of not knowing is quite valuable. And if you can work on forgetting some of the things you should probably never have learned that's made you a little jaded and hesitant, or maybe trying to protect the things that you think you've succeeded with. And you can bury that idea and realize you're always a newcomer every single moment. There's a lot to learn from everybody, including you know somebody who's really new to, new to everything. A hundred percent. And there's something about the freshness. You know, we've talked a lot during the podcast series about diversity and neurodiversity, but actually finding somebody who's got a different way of seeing the world from you and just seeing freshness, seeing the same issue through fresh minds is so powerful. Just before we move on from that story, you're talking about cleaning the floors and washing the windows. But so that the audience really understand what you mean by that, give me an example of how that actually manifested within the workplace. I think in the early days when I first came to the company, our products had kind of drifted backwards into... You know, mediocrity is too strong a term. We've never made really a mediocre price, but I would say they, they felt very um, plastic and dark and kind of the, the standard black plastic, you know, okay stuff. And, and I, and so I, I, I would have never worked in tech, but I just got directly involved in every single product in the beginning, you know, with, with my teams. And so I'd have three meetings a week with design teams from outside because we didn't have any designers inside then. And with our teams, inside who were mostly product people or business people and we would just work through you know what's the user really want and why is this there why is that there and i guarantee you i was not the biggest value add person in that meeting 
But the fact that I cared about those details and wanted to get things out of the product sometimes that we would naturally have left in and made the product more complex, that caring about the cleanliness of the window, the simplicity of the product, or the things that shouldn't be there, not just the things you want to have there, that caring, you know, really, I think spreads, you know, that it's infectious, you know, when you really have the permission to be critical about things that you, you think you don't, you know, then all of a sudden those people who really do know better than me, you know, suddenly they activate. And I think that's part of what the power of, if you're leading an organization, caring about the details gives other people permission to prioritize those details and to be strong on things they believe in. 100%. That was really, really pragmatic, useful advice, I think, for our listeners. And a great story in number one. Thank you to the entrepreneur. <laughs> oh, Getting your hands dirty as a leader is so important. What's your story number two? Well, I probably go to story number two is the other end of the spectrum. Now, you know, I've been here for about five years. At that point, you know, I mean, the company's worth, I think, 19 times more than when I started. So it's doubled in value every two or three years. And we've had, you know, really a great run, but we're, we're the best place we've ever been for, for the future now. But when five years in, so that's four years ago, I was sitting there. I always do my kind of every year I sit down and I write down, how did I do last year? I grade myself and, you know, and then I score myself. And then I rewrite my goals for the next year. I was doing that process and I was thinking, as I was writing my goals for the next year, I was thinking, you know, God, we're so different today than we were five years ago. And I was thinking, yeah, five years from now, we'll be even more different. And it made me think, so I was probably the right person, or at least one of the right people when they hired me. But I wonder if I'm really the right person for the next five years. And so I feel ownership of the company. I can do something else. I mean, I can, I'll go do something else if, if I'm the wrong person. So I literally wrote down, what do I think the person, what should the CEO be for the next five years? And then I wrote down, how do I match up? You know, what's my CV relative to that? And after writing it down, I thought I'd make the short list of people they would hire, but I, I might not be the number one in many ways, but I'd make the short list. And so I thought, well, that was kind of comforting me. And th but then I thought, yeah, but I've got a problem, which is I own everything we did. And I know that if we're going to be as different five years from now as I think we're going to be, somebody's going to have to completely take apart half the things I did, or at least completely change them. And am I really objective enough to do that? No, because I feel ownership for every strategy, every person, every product, every, you know, the culture we're trying to create. So I thought, no, it's impossible. You know, you just can't be. And it's probably selfish of me to think I can't. So I decided I was going to fire myself. And so I, I now I, at that point in my career, I realized, you know, it's really a good idea to sleep on things for, especially big decisions, because you, for some reason, you process things at night that you don't process when you're conscious. So I, I decided, okay, I'm going to sleep on it, but I'm, tomorrow morning I'll call my chair and I'll tell him we, we'll take a long time to do the transition, a year or something, we'll get the right person, we'll hire him, whatever. So I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning and as happens, I think 51% of the time for me when I sleep on a big decision, I reverse myself. I thought, no, that was completely wrong yesterday. The right thing for me to do is absolutely stay and go after the next five years or more, but I have to come in with you know absolutely nothing that I did is, is sacred. Nothing can be protected. No decision that I made is anything but neutral. Now I am a newcomer. I'm starting over again. I, this is my first day. So I decided I'm signing the contract. I'm a new employee. I'm coming into the office and nothing, I'm not going to leave anything on the table. I'm going to be critical about everything that I did. Whoever that idiot was that did it probably worked for him for a while, but it wasn't going to work anymore. I'm going to have to prove to myself that this is going to work. So I, I really started changing stuff right away, you know, and I didn't tell anybody, but I started changing stuff. And I, and I did that for about, you know, 
a couple of months, I think I only shared it with my DFO, who also really liked that idea. And so then about three months in, I decided to share it with my leadership team that I'd had this kind of thought process. And so I, I told them the same story. And then I told them, now this weekend, I want you to go fire yourselves. And I want you to you know, really fire yourself and sleep on it. And if you decide you want to come back, I want you to you know, sign a contract with yourself that says you're going to have nothing's going to be sacred to you. You're going to, you're going to take apart the thing you did yesterday, if you have to, or the thing that was the most successful for you, because it doesn't make sense anymore. I said, and if you don't fire yourself, I will, and I won't rehire you. It's that important. And uh, <laughs> I'm not a threatening person. Yes, I kind of, <laughs> I really believe it. And how did that go down with your, so <clears throat> human brains? So a couple of things. One, we as humans always believe that our own actions, our own ideas are the best ideas. Absolutely. So how did you question yourself? Tell give me a kind of more tangible example of how new you, new CEO, came back in to start the next five-year tenure. What did you unpick and how do people feel about that? Because whether you told them or not, they must have felt there was a change in the way that you were doing things. I'll give you an example. One of my most experienced people, one of my best people, I decided, you know, we needed to part ways. And that person had been my partner for the whole time and, he was, and was great. But I knew that what we needed next was something quite different. And uh, I'm super loyal and I really believe this person has done an amazing job. And the old me would never have done that. Because I, I love people, you know, and I especially love people who really do great things. And, you know, and, I, and I'm not cold-blooded and I never would, would be able to do that. But on the other hand, I'm the CEO of a public company. It's not my company. These are, you know, I don't get to work with my friends. I have to work with the best team I can possibly put on the floor. And, and to have an impact on the world at the scale that we're capable of, I need to make sure that I've got the, the right edge and pushing the right edges all the time. And so... I knew that I needed to do that after I thought about it that when I woke up the next morning and I followed through on it in a week and uh, it took a while to play out. And I think it was the right thing for that person too, by the way, that's an example. And I, and I have a lot more, I never talk about those things very publicly, but, but there were lots of them and we keep evolving. We didn't change the strategy of the company. We didn't change the vision. I have a new one, which maybe you'll have me back on another time. I'll talk about it. I just did. It's even actually quite interesting. We'll see where that comes out. But we'll save that for the fourth story of another show. A little too early to tell us now. God. So one of our C's for create is courage. And that took, that took and takes courage. And I can't imagine actually how that felt for the people who'd become used to the status quo. You're the CEO. You're clearly a very empathetic, personable, likable guy. And seeing that kind of resolve, maybe ah, maybe we're missing resolve. Maybe that should be one of our R's. What do you think, Brecken? No, I think um, drive is, the, and I don't know if you, you, you need you have to add created to, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> but I think, I think if you want to call our uh, resolve, it's kind of the equivalent of drive. I think, I think it's, it's like the X factor that is very hard to teach in uh, it's so powerful and can be cultivated in yourself. It's a little bit like, I love goals, you know, because if you end up getting pretty good at setting goals and, and working to deliver on them, they operate like uh, like creating hunger, you know? 
it, it created this gap in you that you must fulfill because you feel conviction around the goal. And so you want to close it just like you want to eat when you're hungry. And I think that idea of, yeah, of really having resolve that you're just going to make it happen. So it's more, so important. It's bigger than you, you know, and, and then you just go after it. I love that. Thank you so much for your second story. Um, story number three. Well, the third story happened uh, in 2020, you know, and I, I lived in the U.S. I travel a lot. You know, our headquarters is in Switzerland, so I'm there in Europe about once a month, and I'm in Asia probably once every three months. And But my home is in California, and I grew up in the south in Kentucky. And uh, for those of your listeners who are not uh, as familiar with the U.S., the south is the original home of slavery. And uh, it's come a long way, of course, uh, But and but I grew up on the on the right side of that, I had very progressive parents who, who were, especially my mother, who was completely anti-racist and so, so believing and, you know, everybody's equal and that everybody should get an equitable shot at the world. And I, so I grew up in that. And I, and as I went through my career, I worked at GE, I was on the diversity council there trying to raise the diversity of the company, whether it was under, all underrepresented groups, whether it was women or people of color. I had always kind of fought for this. When I came to the company, I only had, there were only two people on my leadership team who were women. And and now it's, you know, 40%. It's, it's probably more than 50% of the total value from a revenue and profit standpoint. So, so I've always been a believer in this. And so when the George Floyd murder happened, for those of your listeners don't know, this was a, you know, and, and I don't know how you couldn't, the news is so loud, but there was a, there was a, a black man who was murdered by a police officer. And later the police officer was convicted of murder. But it was an example of something that happened many, many times in the U.S. But when that happened, about three days later, I was sitting in my kitchen table, you know, about six o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget it. Thinking about that and thinking, how in the world do these things happen? You know, how, how do we get here? You know, that we're... And then I was thinking about the other example from my past, you know, why I grew up, a big anti-racist event was the end of apartheid when Nelson Mandela came out of prison, became president. And I thought, you know, God, what were all those leaders doing there? Because there's such a, there must have been a leadership vacuum that they let this go for so long. And then it struck me all at once, you know, those leaders didn't speak up and I'm not either. And then I haven't used my platform to talk about racism and anti-racism. And I just haven't done it. And it was like if somebody hit me in the head with a, an iron frying pan and it hurt and it continues to hurt. And I thought, wow, I, I just felt horrible. And I realized in that moment that, you know, how terrible that I was. I, I, I always thought I was one of the good guys. I was actually just like anybody else who wasn't using the privilege they have to, to, to drive the change. It's, it's life or death. You know, it's not only equity, but it's life or death. So that was the most transformational event, I would say, in my life. I mean, I literally changed everything. We redefined the purpose of the company. I wrote a LinkedIn post that, that morning. I published it like two hours later. I, I We put out our seven steps we're going to do for diversity, equity, inclusion. We've completely changed our approach to everything. Our, we, we put the word all in our purpose statement, which is we, we're going to enable all people to pursue their passions. We've got further suppliers, suppliers all the way through into the company, all the way to our customers up in, at the board level and into our, the communities we work in and then the, the world at large. We have two values that we've defined. One is equality or equity for everyone. And the other one is, is being good for the environment. So that's a big deal to me, and I'll never be the same. And I hope that, you know, that some of the people who are watching this were as lit on fire by this as I was, if they're in the U.S. And if you're not in the U.S., racism is everywhere. And make no mistake, it's bad in the U.S., but it's bad in a lot of places. 
and the underrepresented people, including women, who you know are fifty-one percent of the world's population, but are grossly underrepresented in way too many places, they need incredibly inspired advocacy by the people who have the advantages, whoever they are. And so I'm definitely one of those, and I hope all your listeners are. I think it's one of those conversations that there could be, there, there is nothing more important than knowing how to deal with sexism, with racism, with classism, but it's so, so difficult to know how to actually resolve it. I was talking to a woman last week, Debbie from IBM, and she was saying she went to be a partner at IBM. And one of her colleagues said to her, don't even try. Because she said, why? And he said, because you'll never be able to think and behave like a, like a white middle-aged man. And she went, eh, excuse me. And so she did go for being a partner. Yeah. And now she's created a product, a service that's massively changed IBM in the way that it... But that is so deeply ingrained people, as you quite rightfully say, they're not even aware of it. You, you wrote a blog, it was a brilliant blog, um, to say we're going to change the way we do things. But what do you do to really change the system from being tribal and having those antibodies for the other tribe? Um, how, how do you, what have you done to actually change that? And how well, has it impacted I, the people inside your organization? We could probably have a very long discussion around this, so I'll try to keep it brief. It starts with you, you know, and me. Yeah, you know, we grew up like everybody does with a unique perspective and a unique collection of experiences and usually leaves out underrepresented groups, at least in a deep way. So trying to become a student of the minority and a student of the underrepresented needs to become the responsibility of those who are not underrepresented, like me. It's, it should really be a requirement, not, a, not an option. You should require yourself. Because if you're like me, I'm a white male, I have so many advantages that I can't. So no one will, will force me to do this. And so you need to willingly do it. So that's the first is become a student. There are things to read. There's a book called Biased, if you haven't read that. And there's, a, there's another book called Some of Fears. There, there's so many great things to read out there that you can really become a student. Go to a Juneteenth celebration somewhere. Attend a black church service, you know, do all those things and, and just get yourself so you you become a little more familiar. The second thing is inside the company, you know, we've taken a long time to get here because because the capacity of these organizations is so, they've just exploded in demand, is education. Because as you rightly said, so we don't know. It's not, I, you can't sit there and say, you shouldn't have done that. If you don't know, so many people really don't realize what they're doing. Microaggressions happen you know, every day in our company, I guarantee you, so does systemic racism and people don't even know it. And so it really is fundamental that we get everybody educated at every level. And it's not a one-time shot deal where you do a two-hour training session and then you're, you're ready. It's a lifelong thing. The, the reality of, of diversity, equity, inclusion is it's growing. The body of information is growing. Our vocabulary is changing. We will always need more education on it. So that's the second one. And the third one, and maybe the most important of all, what, assuming you've got the basics covered, is to interrupt instances where you see it. And you will see it more and more as time goes on. I'll give you one example that every per person on this call will probably be able to relate to. I have a direct report who's great. We're looking for a head of a certain function. 
the guy called me and said, I've got a perfect person for this. I didn't think we could possibly attract him, but we have. You know, he meets all the specs and he's a great person. I want you to meet him. Came, you know, I knew him before he came out of my network. I said, okay. So, and he'd already introduced him to other people in the company. Everybody said, man, this is like perfect. We couldn't ask for a better fit for what we're looking for. It's a tough job to fill. So I met with the person and he was right. The person was perfect. You know, I was like, wow, you couldn't ask for, not perfect, but really good. You know, like a really good fit. I called back the, uh, the, the guy I recommended him and I said, so who else have we interviewed? He said, well, I've interviewed a few people, but there's nobody like, it's like a, a, a kind of a, a, a unicorn, like it's really unusual person. I said, so we haven't interviewed, uh, did we interview any diverse candidates? No, it's really hard to find them. I said, hard to find diverse candidates in any field. You know, this is one of the, one of my pet peeves. I, you know, people say, well, you know, engineering, you know, hardware engineering, it's really hard to find women in hardware engineering. So they, that would, they used to be the excuse that somebody would use if they couldn't, you know, if they couldn't hire or didn't hire a hardware engineering director who was a, a woman. And I would say, wait a minute, let me get this straight. Why is it hard? Because only 15% of graduates in hardware engineering are women. I said, okay, 15%. Let's think about it. In the U.S., that's probably a million people a year. That's a, so a million people a year, we need one of them. We yeah. One a million? I don't want to hear about percentages of people who come out. I want to hear that why we can't find one in a million. And so if you don't get in and interrupt, then you, and it, it, so it's a hands-on, it's a human thing. You've got to interrupt it, not be mean, not be nasty, just interrupt the moment, use it as a teaching experience. And boy, if you're the leader, that word will spread. I hope that word will spread. I hope it's spreading in our organization. I've got great people and they're, they're sponges for this stuff. And they all believe in DE&I. And I think it's spreading. And it's a matter, like you say, of challenging, because one, one of the behavioral insights that I find absolutely fascinating is that we release oxytocin to bond us with our tribe. But that very same neurochemical makes us behave in a defensively aggressive way to people who don't look like us, yeah. who don't behave like us, who don't act like us. And therefore, our physiology is fighting against diversity. Yeah. Which, you know, and so you're right, as a leader, your job is to challenge people and inspire them. And Brack and Daryl, I can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute inspiration to have this conversation with you. Thank you for your stories. The last thing we always do in this podcast is you need to decide what shall we call your episode of Humans Leading Humans? What shall we call it? Maybe uh, be a newcomer. Be a newcomer. Brack and Daryl, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy and I can't thank you enough. I look forward to talking to you again soon. It's been an honor to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Brecken, I knew this would be an absolute cracker, but wow, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed that. Dear listeners, there were some really useful, pragmatic, actionable takeaways from that conversation that I and we all can start putting into action as soon as we get back to our day jobs. As leaders, we've got responsibilities. We've got to grab them by the horns. It doesn't matter whether you're a CMO or a CGO or a CEO or a CHO. It doesn't matter what C you are. The job is to take that responsibility seriously. We've got to own it. 
It's not enough to talk. You've got to sit forward, challenge yourself, challenge others, be the change you want to see. I really hope that you enjoyed that and found that as inspiring and useful as I did. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. So if you are a senior leader and you know if you need the know-how and the networks to succeed and you're not already a member, get over to their website and become part of that tribe. I would 100% recommend it. Massive, massive thanks as always to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how Beep supports companies by unlocking the problem-solving potential of humans. If you loved this episode, pass it on to your friends, pass it on to your colleagues that you think might need a shot of inspiration. Together, we can change the world of work. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human and see you next week. Mm -hmm.